So today we are finishing up our series called Walking on Water. So I'm going to invite you once again, once again, to turn to Matthew chapter 14. We've spent now four, we're spending four weeks on one story in the book of, of Matthew. We've been combing through it, we've been teasing it out, we've been picking it apart in the hopes that we can draw from it not only um, a challenge, but also an encouragement to go deeper in our faith. This is, this is all about faith. So just as Pastor Steve did on week one of this message, uh, of this series, um, he read through the entire story. I'm gonna do that once again as we close things off. Again, this is Matthew chapter 14, starting with verse 22. It says, immediately he made the disciples get into the boat and go on ahead to the other side while he dismissed the crowds. And after he had dismissed the crowds, he went up to the mountain by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone, but by this time the boat, battered by the waves, was far from the land, for the wind was against them. And early in the morning, he came walking toward them on the sea. But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified, saying, it is a ghost. And they cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them and said, take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. He said, come. So Peter got out of the boat, started walking on water, and came toward Jesus. But when he noticed the strong wind, he became frightened and began to sink. He cried, and beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Jesus immediately reached out his hand and caught him, saying to him, you of little faith, why did you doubt? When they got into the boat, the wind ceased, and those in the boat worshiped him, saying, truly, you are the son of God. I wonder how many times a day you would let out this exclamatory word. Whew. Now, there's lots of occasions when we would let this out, and we probably let it out more than we would realize. Like most of the time, it's when we narrowly escape some kind of discomfort or harm or difficulty. Like, let's say, hypothetically, you were on your way to church this morning and you got pulled over, allegedly, and you got off with a warning, allegedly. <laughs> it didn't happen to me this morning. Um, sometimes it's narrowly escaping some, some kind of harm. Sometimes we've been in the midst of some kind of difficulty or discomfort or a harmful situation or difficult relationship, whatever it would be, some sort of challenge, discomfort, we would be in the midst of it and now it's finally over and we say, Whew, man, I am glad that that is over. So this whole series about faith, teaching us about faith, guiding us about faith, encouraging us and inspiring us to go deeper in our faith. Now, this series now comes to the conclusion, and we're gonna just focus on those last two verses. 
Those last two verses in this story, Matthew 14, 32, and 33, as it closes off. Now, typically, when we're reading a Bible story, we just sort of come to, you know, we just come to the end, and we're like, okay, and then we move, you know, we sort of read on. It's kind of interesting. I hope you've gotten a lot out of this where you actually stop and you pause and you consider what's, what's happening in even just these, these two different verses. Let me do a quick recap, though, for you as we come to these two verses. Uh, because I've talked about how this, there's a lot of, um, th- th- this story captures um, a lot that we face in life in a, in a metaphorical sense, that there are things that symbolize things for us, and that way we can identify what's, with what's happening in the story. It's like not all of you are boaters or fishermen, and you know, you're not a part of that context, but we can, we can hear God's word speak to us in this way as it, as it really captures a scenarios and situations that we're familiar with. So in a couple of weeks ago, I talked about the, really what the, the meaning of the winds and the waves and being out on the sea, that it's, it's a metaphor, a common biblical metaphor for the chaos of life for the struggles of life, for the things that we didn't ask for and we didn't plan for, they just happened to us and we had to, to deal with them. Those are the wind and the waves. And it's noticed that in this story, the disciples go out alone, mind you, distanced from Jesus. They go out alone and they're caught by the, the waves and the wind. And isn't it interesting, it says that the wind was against them, right? And doesn't that capture life sometimes for us? That life or the evil one, Satan, is just against us, and we feel that, like we feel that just something, we just cannot move forward or get ahead, that, that something is against us. So this is the wind and, and the waves that, that symbolize that. And we also talked about what the boat might represent for us, right? That these are the structures, the things that we build for ourselves Uh, for our own sense of thriving and safety and security while we're out on turbulent waters, right? And it doesn't mean that we can control everything, but this is just our little way, right, of, of, of doing something to be safe, to be secure, to thrive, to get ahead in life, right? That's how we navigate the seas. We build structures for ourselves. We build structures of our schedules, of our lives, where we live, what we do, um, how, sort of our, our regular life routine. We're intentional about that, right? And we, we build those things for ourselves so that we would succeed in life, so that we would thrive in life, so that we would get ahead um, in life even though there are sometimes things that happen outside of our control. And so here at the end, the disciples, it says here in verse 32, when they got in back into the boat, when they got back into their structure of safety, when they got back into the thing that they had built for themselves to keep them safe and secure, the wind had ceased. So we have two things going on for them. That, that, that um, two things going on for them that really um, indicate that there's some really, this, nothing but good things ahead, right? Not only did they get back in their place of safety, but the, the turbulence, the, 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 the wind and the waves, all of that became still. And so what we find in this moment then is a shift, right? A, a juxtaposition of their experience, that they're facing these hardships, these difficulties, that something was against them. They are afraid in response to that, 
And not only that, but then Jesus shows up and they think it's, he's a ghost and, and somehow they're, they're not really sure what's going on in terms of God's presence in the midst of this, these turbulent waters. We've been there before too, haven't we? Where are you, God? So there, there's all of this uncertainty, there's all of this chaos, there's all of this struggle, and suddenly they're back in the boat. Jesus is with them and there's nothing but smooth sailing ahead. That is a, just a moment, a pivot point that, that we experience, that we, that, we, that we know about. That when we, when we get closure from that dysfunctional relationship and we look ahead and think about the possibilities, that we leave that, that difficult and, and challenging and, and maybe toxic job environment for a new position, a new job somewhere else, and there's nothing but smooth sailing ahead. That we're, we're done with that stage of life that we've worked so hard and just trudged through, and now we're riding high a little bit. We're, we're nothing but, but good things and positive things and smooth sailing that we can see that is in, in front of us. I think that that little that little moment, that little pivot point is something that, w- that we experience so commonly. But the way that we respond to those situations, I think, are, are different. And the way in which the disciples respond to this little moment, I think, can teach us and inform us in how to respond out of faith as opposed to maybe what we would just do naturally. Because what I think that I would do in that situation is the same as what I do in a lot of those little moments where, where I can see nothing but smooth sailing ahead, and that is to say, I am glad that that is over with. Like, okay, Jesus, good lesson. I'm glad it's over, right? I'm glad that we're, that we're done with it. Now, just a little bit sort of behind the scenes cliff notes here, that when people that are in this sort of position where they're giving messages and preaching and that kind of thing, sometimes preachers and, and teachers and all of that use a little device that helps illuminate the, a point or, that, they're, that they're trying to make. And it's really an effective tool. It's, it's, called, um, it's, tr- it's called making a straw man argument. You've heard of this before, right? You want to make a point. And in order to highlight the point, you sort of create a, 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 a phony opposition, to compare it to so that the point you're making is, is highlighted. Like, so for example, um, let's say I was telling you a story about someone who went into an ice cream store. And I'd say, you know, he went into the ice cream store and he ordered a chocolate ice cream cone. Not a pistachio ice cream cone. Not a do- double chocolate fudge cake batter with sprinkles, ice cream, you know, whatever it is. Not a Superman ice cream cone. He ordered a chocolate ice cream cone. And you get this idea that there's something significant about the chocolate. And because I used a comparison, you get the idea that the chocolate ice cream cone um, was simpler, right, than than the others. Now, in real life for me, I get a lot of grief about this because I order chocolate ice cream cones. So I appreciate you letting me air this grievance. 
I typically don't like to use these straw man arguments, especially when it comes to the scriptures, because sometimes people in the position that I am when we preach and teach, we end up crafting a message around something that's not there rather than something that is there, okay? But I'm gonna make myself an exception in this regard, because I think that the way in which the disciples on the boat respond to what just happened is counter and prophetic to how I would normally respond to situations like this when God shows up and does something amazing. Because my natural reaction is relief. My natural response is to be relieved. Not relief in the sense that God provides relief to the captive and to the oppressed and the marginalized and the poor, because we find that all throughout scripture that there is this act of relief and that we as Christians are called to provide relief to, to those who are hurting, those that are poor, and, uh, for the uplifting of those that have been oppressed and marginalized. So I'm not talking about the act of relief. I'm talking about the feeling of relief. Like being relief, like that feeling of, whew, man, I'm glad that that is, is over with. That seems to be my natural response to situations like this. Merriam-Webster Dictionary defines relief in this way. Relief is the removal or the lightening of something oppressive, painful, or distressing. When I look at this definition, it defines for me what I experience, and that is that relief is a, is a positive feeling, right? I want to feel relieved, especially when I'm in the midst of hardship. I want to feel relief when I'm going through difficulties. When I'm uh, confronted with a difficult job or difficult task, I would like to be relieved of that job or that task because it's hard. It's uncomfortable. It's, it's difficult in, in some way. And, and I don't want to go through that. So I wish for that feeling of, of relief. The problem with this feeling, not all the time, but, mo but much of the time, the problem with this feeling of relief is that it's too good of a feeling. That when I'm approaching difficulties, when I'm going out onto the turbulent waters, when I'm confronted with something that life has thrown in my face, and yes, sometimes when I'm called out in faith by God himself, because that's inherently difficult, because it's counter to what I would want to do, it's what God wants me to do, then I shy away from those things. And I work to avoid those things, because I want to feel relief. Sometimes, I, and I wonder if you do too, sometimes I navigate life with just the, the goal of avoiding pain, with just um, going through it unscathed, just so that I, I don't go through any difficulties or hardships or problems or challenges. I would just rather avoid the discomfort of all of that, and so I just sort of avoid it, you know, altogether. And the problem with that is that when I look back at, granted, the small amount of ways I've matured, 
or grown or increased my faith. You know, I've learned more from my failures than I have my successes. I've grown more through my difficulties than I have through my good times. There's something about life. There's something about navigating the waters of life that we grow and we flourish not through avoiding the pain, but overcoming the pain. That we somehow learn and grow in faith, not when we're avoiding all those difficult circumstances, but that we found Jesus out on the waters with us. And so we run into these, this sort of difficulty because we, at least for me, I want to feel relief and it leads me to want to avoid the pain and discomfort that, that, that is needed to grow. And yet Jesus is saying, if you want to grow, you've got to come out on the water with me, right? And sometimes I fail to even jump out because it's not worth the risk. That that feeling of relief is really what I want out of the deal. So I'm drawing a little bit of a comparison to what would be my natural response of relief that, man, I'm glad that's over, to a faith-filled response. I really question if relief is even a faith word because it has everything to do with the avoidance of the discomfort and pain of what I just went through and doesn't lead me to focus on God and what God is doing in that moment and what God might be teaching me in that moment. I tend to be more focused on the relieving of my own discomfort and pain than I do on God. And if we remember, the whole point of this was to keep our eyes fixed on God, to grow closer to Jesus. And that that is the definition of faith. So I wanna ask you a challenging question. What do you expect out of life? What do you expect out of life? How did you, how have you set up your expectations that life, on how life should go for you? And has your expectations led to a variety of different responses of whether you're feeling relief or whether you're feeling something else that we'll, that we'll get to here in just a minute. What are you expecting out of life? So in Matthew 14, the last verse in this story, verse 33, and this speaks to me so greatly. In verse 33, it says, um, they, they have smooth sailing ahead, and it says, and those in the boat worshiped him. They worshiped him. They worshiped him. The Greek word there that was written in the original language, um, see if I can get this. I was practicing this all morning, and now I got it. Proskunia, proskunia is, and it, it's the same root where we say uh, to prostrate oneself, to kneel down, to bow oneself low, 
and it's sort of the, the same kind of word that you would expect a, uh, an inferior person to respond to a king uh, where you would bow yourself low. And, and in that, you're creating a, a, a dynamic in relationship, right? That a hierarchy in relationship to make the worshiped figure more as the worshiper makes themselves less. To make the worshiped figure more while at the same time making the, the worshiper making themselves less. It creates this, this hierarchy. And in the English, when we say worship, is really just worth-ship. That when we come and we, we worship God, we declare the, that hierarchy that God is great and we're whatever we are. And that there's a hierarchy there and we give God, who is awesome and great and powerful and majestic, we give God the glory and the praise because that's just how it is, right? That is, is worship. Now, I, I grew up in the church. My dad was a pastor. So when I look at the word worship, I have a flurry of memories, that come up. Now, remember, I was a pastor's kid, okay? Like, that was, church was like my second home, and I treated it like my bedroom sometimes. There was one time, I remember, and if I go back to the same church, I, I, I kid you not, people will come up to me and say, hey, remember that time? And there was a time where, and this was a more traditional church where they had lighting of candles and stuff, and I was an acolyte. And I, you know, carried the thing down the middle of the aisle and I would light the candles and all of that. Well, one day I thought it was really great, a great idea to tie my shoelaces together and see if I could actually make it down with the, with the candle. Right? Oh, yeah, worship. I got so many worship stories, guys. I would come down. They had a children's sermon. I would come down and I'd be thinking, what kind of joke can I say? I just want to get the crowd laughing. Oh, that really hasn't changed, has it? Um, you, they had food afterwards, free food, and I would always leave early, even, you know, ignoring the disgruntled looks of my mom and dad. I would leave the service early just so I can be first in line to grab the snacks that were awaiting for me uh, in, in the back. I would play hide-and-seek in the church building during, uh, during the week, all kinds of different memories. And because church became kind of like home for me, uh, church was very much, and worship was very much sort of a, a homely or a, a sort of a family-oriented experience or what I would call a horizontal experience, right? I was looking forward to connecting with, with other people. But something changed with me when I finally surrendered my, my life to Jesus. Something changed for me when I, I finally surrendered my life to Jesus and worship became different. That it was still sort of that horizontal, I like to connect with people because people are great and, and, and all of that. But, but it was different because suddenly it wasn't just a horizontal experience, it was also a vertical experience. That I was able to really connect with, with God in, in worship. And the words that I would sing uh, 
And the words that I would hear from, from the message would teach me about who God really is. And when I'd sing, I'd sing about God's, who God is and what God has, has done. It's always worth mentioning or thinking about what we've made of worship. Like when we come here, specifically on a, on a Sunday morning, what, what we make of that experience or how we only define worship within the context of this one hour on Sunday morning. It's worth thinking about for those of us that are seasoned Christians, for those of us that have gotten kind of this homely feeling when we come into this building, we come to, to be with our friends and we sing the songs that we're familiar with and we see the people that we've known for a long time. That creates this, this, this feeling this sigh of relief, this ah. <sighs> some of you, depending on how your week has gone, man, I'm so glad I'm in church, right? And so it creates sometimes this feeling, and, and it creates this, this feeling of, of comfort and of ease. It is sometimes in itself a little boat that we have crafted uh, for ourselves, and that's what keeps drawing us in. That's what keeps attracting us to this time, to this experience, is that feeling of, of relief. The disciples witnessed what Jesus did, witnessed what Jesus was teaching in that moment, and their response was to truly worship, to truly worship God. It says... Uh, it goes on in verse 33, and those in the boat worshiped him and they said, truly. This is another exclamatory word. Truly. It's something that in the ancient world, I mean, they wouldn't say it in English, but they would utter it out. Truly. Something has just been revealed. Truth has made itself known to us right here in this moment in the presence of Jesus. Truly, something that is true and is real has just appeared to us. Truly. Worship is a confession. Above all, and I, and I know we have lots of different experiences when it comes to worship, worship is a confession. It is when Jesus reveals himself to us, when God shows up, even unexpectedly, when the Holy Spirit is present with us, comes down upon us, abides with us, reveals his presence to us, and we utter in response, truly, it's a confession. I see it now. Wow. Oh. Wow. Worship is a confession. And yeah, it's, it's a confession of a, a, a lot of things, maybe. Maybe God has revealed something specific to you, but, but primarily and foundationally, worship is a confession of God's very nature. And this is important, of God's very nature. Notice that even beyond what Jesus did in that moment, he walked on water, he caused Peter to walk on water, and then he reached down and he saved Peter. G 
Jesus did enough in that moment to be worshiped for what he did. But the disciples don't really reference that, do they? They don't say, Jesus, whoa, look what you just did. No, here's what they say. They say, and those in the boat worshiped him saying, truly, you are the son of God. Worship is a confession, but it's a confession of God's very nature and whatever Jesus has done and and continues to do and will do for us is out of his, his very nature. What God does for us is out of his very nature so that we could worship the person of God, the person of Jesus Christ, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. We can worship God with whom we are in relationship with. And that our worship would not be contingent on what God has done for us lately. Our worship wouldn't be contingent on how we might be feeling in the moment. Our worship wouldn't be contingent on the experiences that we have, if the music is fitting for us, if the message is great, if anyone's talked to us or not. Our worship would not be contingent upon all of those different things, but simply that God is God is God is God, and he is worth the praise that we give. You are. God is unchanging. God does does not change. It does not morph. In, in Malachi 3, 3, 6, um, Malachi's, uh, God's speaking as, as a, word of, a word of hope, and it says, for I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you, O children of Jacob, have not perished. It's all about who God is. You are. You are. So I want to challenge you with a question Do you have contingencies when it comes to worshiping God? Do you have contingencies? Um, Your contingency could be voiced in such a way where you say, yeah, but. Yeah, Yeah, God is unchanging. God is, is worthy of praise, but I really don't have time except for on Sunday mornings. You know, God is everything to me. Jesus is everything to Jesus saved my life. He's worthy of my praise. But sometimes I'm just not feeling it. What are the contingencies that we have when it comes to just lifting up the, the truly you are statements of worship? And if we are able to move past our contingencies, and to fix our eyes on God's very nature and who Jesus has revealed himself to be for us. If we fix our eyes on that and we come to know that deep within our hearts, what we will find is a truly a confession that just bubbles up when we weren't even looking for it. Wow, God, you're amazing, God. You ever had that happen before? You just sort of start worshiping, start praising. It just sort of comes out of you. Are there contingencies, though, that, that we've been dealing with? And, and have we been building a, a, a life of expectation, not only on God, but how life should go, that, that it needs to go according to our plan and according to our ways, and we really want to get through this thing unscathed, so I'd rather not go through this difficulty or this pain or this challenge or this hard work. 
because I, you know, I just want to feel relief. A good reference for this entire series has been a book by John Ortberg saying, Ortberg saying uh, his book is called If You Want to Walk on Water, You've Got to Get Out of the Boat. And here's what he says. He says, I need to worship because without it, I can forget that I have a big God beside me and live in fear. I need to worship because without it, I can forget his calling. I can forget his calling and begin to live in a spirit of self-preoccupation. I need to worship because without it, I lose a sense of wonder and gratitude and plod through life with blinders on. I need to worship because my natural tendency is towards self-reliance and stubborn independence. We need worship. And not just the gathering together and not just the fellowship time and the meeting together of friends. And all of that's important, don't get me wrong. But we need to worship. We need to recognize who God is and who we are or not. To recognize who God is, his greatness, his wonder, his awesomeness, his power. We need that. We need that. Because if we begin to go through life expecting relief, expecting that, that feeling of, whew, got through it, then we're going to be sorely disappointed. We need worship to remind us that God is there, that God is present with us, that whether we're out on the water or we're in our boat, God is, is, is there. And it's our recognition that, that, that God in, in his very essence is, is with us through the presence of his Holy Spirit. So in just a minute, we're gonna have a time, just a short time where we lift up a song in worship. And I pray that it would have new meaning for you um, because we, we, we come here and we sing. That's one way that we lift up our, our worship to God is by singing. Um, but I also hope that it propels you into a new kind of worship where you find yourself driving home and worshiping, where you find yourself at work staring at your computer but thinking about God and his, and his goodness, where you sit down after a hard day and you lift up just a word of praise because of how good he is. That's my, my hope and my prayer for us. Some of you might have smooth sailing ahead, but praise be to God. Praise be to God. Let's pray. Holy, awesome, majestic, wonderful, love-filled, merciful, caring, amazing God. We come here for a lot of different reasons, but remember in this moment, we, we remember in this moment that we are here for you. We are here to worship you 
to glorify you, to give you praise. Yes, for what you have done. What you've done in the gift of salvation through Jesus. But for who you are. So Lord, reveal yourself to us right here in this moment that wherever we go and whatever we would face in life, as we fix our eyes on you, we would find nothing but but praise to come from our lips. We pray this in the strong and powerful name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Would you stand with us? Let the confession of our heart be the greatness of our God. Let's join. And all the earth will shout your praise. Our hearts will cry. These bones will sing. Great are you, Lord. And all the earth will shout your praise. Our hearts will cry. These bones will sing. Great. So go out as a worshiping people. Not someone who has just come to an experience or to a service for an hour on a Sunday morning. Go out as a worshiper that in all times, in all places, in all occasions, you would be able to lift up that word of praise, thanksgiving for who God is, an unchanging God in all of life's circumstances. Go as worshipers in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.